Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you would, take your Bible and join me tonight in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, a text that probably brought as much conviction to my heart as I was studying it and preparing for it as any message and any text I've looked at uh, in a long time. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 17. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You read a text like this, and it immediately, I think, should raise a question in your mind. And that question is simply this. Am I a friend of sinners? Uh, Do I spend time with persons who do not know Christ? Uh, Persons whose lives may even be offensive to me, who... To say it sarcastically, I have reputations that are not like good people like us, and therefore we are even embarrassed and even see it as a scandal that people would live a life in that kind of a way. Well, do we still love them? Do we still reach out to them? Do we still try to show them the love of Christ that wonderfully has been shown to you and me? To ask it again, do you love sinners? Do you care for sinners? Do you reach out to sinners? Do you serve sinners? Are you, am I, a friend of sinners? And to take it another step, are you and I like Jesus? As I was working through this particular text, as I said a moment ago, I was tremendously convicted because as I stopped and did a little bit of uh, introspection, I had to acknowledge, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time with sinners except when I'm on the mission field. Uh, I spend most of my time with Christians. I, I live in a Christian bubble. And so most of my uh, daily encounters are with believers, persons who profess Christ, persons who claim to love the Lord Jesus. And if I'm not careful, by living in that kind of evangelical bubble, that kind of Christian world, uh, I can become cynical. Uh, I can even become pharisaical. Not careful, I can become like that Pharisee who in Luke chapter 18 and verse 11 gets out in the temple and before all says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. No, God, I am a super saint and you're fortunate to have me on your team to continue his dialogue or his monologue. I I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get. 
You know, for me and for you and really for anyone, it'd be much better to be like the tax collector who in that same chapter, Luke 18, but in verse 13, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what you see there in Luke chapter 18 in many ways is portrayed for us this evening here in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 17, because you and I need to look at this text and determine with whom we're going to identify. And if you're looking at Luke 18, you really don't want to be like the Pharisee, even though he was a a moral, upright man uh, who was very proud of all the good things he was doing for the Lord. No, it would be much better to be like that tax collector who recognizes, apart from the scandalous, amazing grace of God, I have no hope. I have no standing. I have no right to ever expect to be in the presence of God. And recognizing that's who I am, it ought to lead me, like Jesus, to be a friend of sinners. In this text, we're going to encounter what I call three particular groups of persons that Jesus is wont to reach out to and draw to himself. We're going to see that Jesus brings to himself the unlikely. We're going to see that Jesus brings to himself the undesirable. And we'll even see that Jesus brings to himself what could be called the spiritually unhealthy. And as we look at these three different groups, again, there's a question I think all of us need to ask ourselves as we move through these verses, and that is simply this, with whom do I most identify in this text? And secondly, am I loving and am I serving sinners like Jesus? And so the first two verses, Luke, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and verse 14, we discover that Jesus indeed calls the unlikely to follow him. Verse 16, or excuse me, verse 13 begins by telling us he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Jesus has left the house and he is now outside. I think it was because the crowd was growing, the crowd was getting large and so that he might be able to touch more people and speak to more people. He leaves the, the confines of the house and goes out uh, outside beside the sea where there's lots of room. And the Bible says that he was teaching the word. And he was calling disciples to follow him, which we will see particularly in just a moment, a man by the name of Levi. Mark is interesting in his uh, analysis of what's going on because he says there in verse 13 that the crowd was coming to him. And he uses a tense of the verb, which means they, they kept coming. They, they kept coming. They kept coming. Like the waves of the sea where he was teaching, they just kept coming in waves. And as they kept coming, he uses the same tense verb again. And he just kept teaching them and teaching them and teaching them and teaching them. Interestingly, 15 times in Mark's gospel... He will summarize the ministry of Jesus as that of teaching or that of preaching. It reminds us again of what Jesus said back in chapter 1 and verse 38 when he said, Let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. Indeed, I wrote in my own notes, Jesus in Mark is nothing less than a preaching teaching machine. And so there he is out there beside the sea. The crowds keep coming. And he just keeps teaching them. But then verse 14, we see he begins to move again. And it says there, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, seating at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, that is Levi, arose and he followed him. 
Jesus is moving away from where he's teaching, and I believe intentionally he walks along a path that will lead him past this tax collector's booth where there sits this man named Levi. Now, if you cross-reference this story in its parallel account in Matthew chapter 9, there Matthew calls this same individual Matthew. And so I think we're on good ground to identify Levi with Matthew. They are indeed the same two people. Uh, interestingly, of course, the name Levi comes from one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the sons there of Jacob. But the name Matthew, interestingly, means gift of God. And I like what one commentator said, the one who had been a thief will now receive a free gift from God. And having received a free gift from God, he will now become a gift of God to the very people he has abused taken advantage of, and mistreated. It is indeed nothing less than a radical, radical, radical transformation. Now, I need to raise and ask a question and try to answer it. Why would I call him a thief? Why would I say that Levi, the tax collector, was a thief? Well, in your notes, uh, I went into some detail to just tell you a little bit about how tax collectors were viewed uh, in the ancient world. Now, I know they're not viewed all that well in our world. Uh, people don't go around broadcasting, oh, I'm an IRS agent. Uh, you might want to duck when you say that because people just don't tend to have warm and fuzzy feelings about those who work for uh, the tax collecting agency. Well, you think it's bad today. Uh, it is nothing in comparison to what it was in the first century. They were notorious. They, they were hated. They were viewed by the people as nothing less than a Benedict Arnold. They were traitors to their own flesh and blood. In fact, uh, John MacArthur says that the tax collectors of the ancient world were very much like a mafia organization. Uh, they were organized. Uh, they would hire thugs who would go out like Luca Brodsky and, and uh, collect from those who owed them. And so they were like a mafia organization, and they exploited the people uh, that they had grown up with and that they lived among. Of course, the reason that they were viewed as traitors, that they were serving both the, the Romans... And also the Herods. And what would happen, of course, is something like this. You would bid to be able to be a tax collector. In other words, what you would do is you would engage in conversation with the Romans. And they would say, well, look, here's the amount of money that I expect you to bring in. And you would say, oh, no, no, I can beat that. And I can bring in this amount of money. Well, then another says, I can bring in this amount of money. And most often, uh, the tax booth, uh, the tax collector would be uh, given that assignment who could pledge the most money back to Rome. Now, once you had met your quota with Rome, you now are on commission. And you can keep anything and everything that you raise and that you collect above what you had promised them. Well, as you can imagine, this led to these men being dishonest. It led to these men being exploiters of the people. In fact, how bad did they hate these guys who overcharged them and abused them? Well, there's some Jewish writings that come along later after the time of Jesus called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And there when they talk about those who are going to be condemned to hell, they list thieves and murderers and tax collectors. So there are the tax collectors right alongside the thieves and the murderers. You became a tax collector, boom, you are kicked out of the synagogue. You are not allowed to come back in and worship. You are a tax collector, uh, you are a disgrace to your family. In fact, many family members would simply write you off and turn you away and act as if you were dead. That's how bad it was to have a child, a son, who was a tax collector. 
tax collector came behind your beside your house and put his hand on it, your house was unclean and would have to be cleansed through some type of ritual. The Jews could lie to tax collectors. And you'd have to worry about getting punished for it. In fact, God would actually excuse you in advance for lying to a tax collector because those are the kind of people you don't have to tell the truth to. And so they were lackeys of Rome. They were extortioners for the Herods. Kent Hughes, who pastored for a number of years at the college church in Wheaton, said, and I quote, they were the lowest of the low, despicable vermin. I put it this way. Uh, Levi, the tax collectors, were social lepers, just as bad as was the case for a physical leper. So these men, bankrupt spiritually, having sold their soul to sin and, and to their own pleasures, these were men that could not have been disdained by any greater measure in the first century. Like that leper that Jesus healed back in chapter 1, Matthew, Levi needed his touch as well to bring healing to his soul. Well, the, the, the scene unfolds with amazing brevity, as you note there. It says there again in verse 14, Jesus sees the man named Levi. Levi, we were informed, is an IRS agent, a tax collector. He simply says to Levi, follow me. He uses an imperative, a word of command, and immediately Levi gets up and follows him. I suspect this is not the first time that Jesus had walked by uh, this tax booth. I, I, I'm quite certain that this is not the first time they had had any type of encounter. I, I'm quite certain, though it may have been from a distance. I mean, Levi would not have been in the crowd uh, by the Sea of Galilee because he would have feared for his life. But perhaps from a distance, he was standing back there all by himself, no one around him. And he was listening to Jesus teach. And he listened to Jesus teach. In fact, maybe the crowds came and went, came and went, came and went, but Levi just stayed there all day long. And he heard and he listened and it touched his heart and it touched his soul. And so Jesus comes by, looks at him, says, Levi, it's time. Time to leave your former life, time to leave your past life, time to turn your back on all that you have counted valuable. I mean, let's face it, money was clearly his God. Money was clearly ultimate in his life. He had no doubt accumulated, as we're about to see, because he lived in a big house, a lot of money and a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, it's time for you to turn your back on all of that and come follow me. Once more, what Jesus does is, is unthinkable. Uh, it, it is scandalous. It would rival. It really would. It would rival his having touched that leper. And yet, just as with the leper, Jesus does not worry about uh, social pressure. He doesn't conform to the expectations of the day. As he says, he came to call sinners to himself, and sinners he would indeed call. You say, Danny, you say that Levi left everything. Where do you get that? Luke 5, 28. Because Luke 5, 28 in the parallel account says, and he left everything, and he followed Jesus. He counted the cost. He took a risk. His decision is both decisive and it is radical. You say, why? Well, here's the deal. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew were what? Fishermen. If things didn't work out with Jesus, what could they do? In fact, what did Peter do? He just goes back to fishing. Uh, there's no going back to your tax booth. I promise you, the day that the Levi left, the next day, there's a new body standing right there 
collecting the taxes in his place. Once he walked away, it was done. It was over. There was no going back to his former way of life. Again, I can't help but ask the question of myself, what happened here? What is going on in both the heart and mind of Levi and also of Jesus? And I think it's just simply this. Levi saw something in Jesus, and Jesus saw something in Levi. He did not see Levi the tax collector, but rather he saw Levi a changed man who would become a disciple, who would become an evangelist, who would become an apostle, who would even become a gospel writer. You see, that's what Jesus does with you and me. He doesn't see us. Well, he does see us for who we are, but he also sees us for what we can become by his grace and for his glory. He looked past who he was then to what he would become later. He sees in this man what nobody else sees. Why? Because Jesus sees sinners differently than do most of us. He was a friend of sinners who calls the unlikely to follow him. But now secondly, he also calls the undesirable to follow him as well. We see this in verse 15. And as he reclined at table, that is as Jesus reclined at table in his house, the house of Levi, no doubt. Uh, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You know, the day of salvation ought to be a day of celebration. I would submit to you that when somebody gets saved, that's a good time to have a party. We, we have parties today for all sorts of silly things. We have parties for Halloween, and we have parties for New Year's, and we have parties for this and parties for that. And I'm not against all of those things. But you know, when somebody gets saved, that's the time to have a party. That's the time to have a celebration. That's when we ought to get together and sing and, if we weren't bad, just dance and just have a good time rejoicing and praising God for what He has done in changing the life of a sinner. And so from verse 14, we're out there by the tax booth. Now in verse 15, we're in a home, and we again learn from Luke 5:29 that it was a great feast. So I have to believe it was a big house in which they were meeting. So it wasn't the house of, of Peter's mother-in-law. They'd gone back to Levi's house. And they're having a big celebration. They're, they're having a good time as they share a fellowship meal. The text tells us here in verse 15, many tax collectors and sinners were there. Again, at the end of verse 15, for there were many who followed him. Now, why did he throw this party? Well, I think perhaps he threw the party to celebrate his new life in Christ. I think he perhaps threw a party as something of a farewell because his, his life is changing and he's going to begin to move about with this itinerant young uh, Galilean evangelist and, and teacher. Uh, no doubt he is also wanting to honor Jesus. And again, one who has been touched by Jesus now wants to see Jesus touch others. And so he invites all of his tax collector friends. And all the riffraff, in fact, when it says uh, the sinners there, I'm going to point out in a moment that that really was, that phrase there, he invited tax collectors and sinners. It probably was a technical term in the, uh, in the first century for people who did not obey the law. Uh, by that I mean the Mosaic law. Not only that, they did not obey the extra traditions that had been added by the Pharisees. That certainly would have included that, but it's most likely... That if you think about uh, who were the friends of Levi, well, he had other tax collectors. After all, rats have to hang together. Rats run with rats. And so the other tax collectors are his friends. But who are the friends of the tax collectors? The, the mafia dudes. The, the, the leg breakers. The, the hoodlums. 
uh, the scavengers, the scum of the earth. And so Jesus is in this house with all these people that are outcast, that are despised, that are rejected, they are alienated, uh, they, they are in need of God's grace. And guess what? They know they're in need of God's grace. You would not have to have convinced them that they were sinners. No, no, no. They would have easily agreed with your assessment if you'd said, well, you're a sinner. Oh, you have no idea what kind of sinner I am. And I cannot help but believe that they were stunned and amazed that the young, famous rabbi would invite them to a party and would sit down, lie down, literally, because what they would do is they had a big round table, and they would lie down and put their left elbow at the edge of the table, their feet away from the table, and they would eat in this kind of a way. And they would stay there and fellowship and, and eat and enjoy one another for, for hours. And I can just imagine that they're thinking, I can't believe this. I would think he'd be running with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but he is actually taking time. And he's invited us to the meal. You say, well, wait a minute. It was Levi's house. Yes, but if you read the text very carefully, it looks very clearly like even though it's Levi's house because it's a big house, a great feast, Jesus is the one who is conducting the feast. Jesus is the one who is at the head of the table. They are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were amazed. But the religious hypocrites were very angry. I thought about this, and I, I realized, you know, in our culture today, uh, we might struggle a little bit to get what's going on here, but then something popped into my mind that happened to me a few years ago that immediately helped me kind of put this in perspective because, you see, um, bigotry, uh, prejudice, uh, looking down your nose at those you deem inferior comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Several years ago, I was uh, invited to preach at a church. I left the guilty church remain anonymous. But I'll tell you the guilty city. I was invited to preach at a church in Moss Bluff, Louisiana. Never been there before. Really don't intend to ever go back. Uh, but I was there uh, doing a prophecy conference. Very interesting. The, the first night when I got through talking about the fact that I believe that God is not through with the Jew, I had a guy come up, get right in my face, and tell me, and I quote, the, the, the Holocaust is a Jewish myth. And I said, excuse me? I thought I misheard him. And he said, I said, the Holocaust is nothing more than a Jewish myth. Nobody killed six million Jews. They just made it up to get sympathy. And I just simply said to him, I don't think I want to talk to you anymore. And I turned and walked away, walked over to the pastor. I said, do you see that guy over there? He said, yeah, he's a, uh, he's a grand wizard. In the Ku Klux Klan. I said, you, you, you got Klan members in your church? He said, about a dozen. He said, half of them are deacons. I said, when did you find that out? He said, about two weeks after I got here. Well, the next afternoon, when we continued the prophecy conference, can you believe it? A black lady showed up. Sweet, gracious, older lady. You'd have thought that a leper had walked in. Nobody would sit with her. Nobody. They, they talked. I mean, you. I'll, well, when he got through teaching, that is, we were going to have dinner. So I made a beeline to her, wrapped my arms around her and hugged her and thanked her for coming. I said, won't you sit at my table? Again, you'd have thought that I had invited a leper to sit at my table. 
That just reminded me once more that bigotry, prejudice, sinful dispositions of the heart manifest themselves in all kinds of ways. I agree with William Lane who says this story of Jesus having this banquet is probably a a foreshadowing. It's kind of a little snapshot of another great banquet that's going to take place in Revelation chapter 19. We call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guess who will be sitting at the head of the table then? Jesus. And guess whom he will invite to come and sit with him? People from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Yes, he's going to call the unlikely. He's going to call the undesirable because through scandalous grace, he reaches out and touches any sinner and every sinner that will repent of their sin and turn and follow him. I'm glad he did. Because I'll tell you what, I I rarely acknowledge that I belong in the unlikely category. And I certainly belong in the undesirable category as well. But there's a third group of persons that he seeks to call to himself. And that is what I call those who are unhealthy. He calls the unhealthy to follow him. Now, in verse 16, we're introduced for the first time in Mark's gospel to this group that we all know by name, but we probably don't know a whole lot about. And that is a group of people called the Pharisees. Verse 16. Now, the scribes, and the word scribes means the, the writers, the, 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 the teachers of, of the law. All the Pharisees were not teachers of the law. Uh, some of them were just normal businessmen, but yet they followed the rules and the regulations. They were the legalists who followed those who did do the writings and who did do the teaching. So all scribes were not Pharisees and all Pharisees were not scribes, but most Pharisees were scribes. So we can at least say it that kind of a way. We're, we're going to discover throughout Mark, as you probably already know, that this will be a, a group of people in particular that will oppose Jesus every step of the way. Now, you say, it says there in verse 16 that when the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, how'd they see it? Oh, I'm sure they were looking through the windows. I guarantee you they weren't in the house. No, I'm not not about to come uh, into an unclean home with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. So they're outside looking. In fact, next week it gets even better because next week, I'm convinced again, they get ticked off that they're having such a good time eating. And so they say, well, I have a question. How come your disciples don't fast like we do? Or because we're not curmudgeons like you are. That's one reason we don't. We, we like life. We have a good time. But, you know, he gets into it and deals with it. So they're outside the house, looking in the windows, looking in the door, and they raise this question with his disciples, probably, you know, Andrew and, and Peter and James and John. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, why does he ignore good people and fellowship with bad people? Why would he stoop? Why would he lower himself to have table fellowship? And again, you and I can't relate to this. You remember in Galatians where Peter uh, gets his tail chewed out by Paul? Over what reason? He would not what? Eat with the Gentiles. That's a big deal back then. That's a huge deal. In fact, any of you that have ever been to the Middle East know to this day, you go into somebody's home, they're going to feed you. In fact, they're not just going to feed you a little, they're going to feed you a lot. In fact, they may not eat, but you will. And you'll eat, and you'll eat, and you'll eat, and you'll like finally have to pull out the handkerchief and say, jet lag, I'm about to fall out, you've got to let me go home. And they'll bring out one more dish too just before you leave. I mean, that's just how they think. And, and for you to turn it down, oh no, that's not even on the radar screen. And that they would not offer 
would never enter their mind. And so what Jesus does, again, is scandals. He, he's touching uh, lepers and he's calling tax collectors and now he's eating with them. And so he is just stooped below the, the rules and the regulations and the traditions of this group of people called the Pharisees. So we're going to take a few minutes and raise and ask you the question. You get a lot of in your notes about it. So after this day, you'll always know where you can go to find out who in the world were these Pharisees. Well, I'm going to move quickly. Bottom line is they were the pious Jews. They were the religious elite who rigorously followed the law of Moses and also they opposed with great uh, zeal uh, any type of Greek or Roman influence on the culture and the religion of Israel. Josephus, the great historian, says that there were probably 6,000 Pharisees during the time of Jesus. Uh, The Sadducees were the more wealthy, upper class. Most of the Sadducees were priests. Most of the Pharisees were not priests. Most of the Pharisees were middle class, laypersons, craftsmen, merchants. Uh, the Sadducees may have gravitated to, to political power, but the Pharisees, they were very active in the everyday life, especially in the synagogue. And so they were very, they were in church every, shoot, in church every week. They were in church almost every day, in synagogue every day. And they were the morally upright, religious elite that everybody looked up to and everybody Admired. Now, here's what was going on. Not only were they experts in knowing and obeying the law of Moses, think Genesis through Deuteronomy. They also were zealous in following what we call the oral law or the, the traditions uh, of the elders. That is where these scribes had elaborated on the Old Testament law so as to, and this is what they would say, we're going to build a fence around the law. So no one will violate it. Oh, we know here's what the, the law of Moses, here's what the Torah says. But to make sure we don't even get close to violating it, they built a fence around it to guard against any possible violation. So, for example, hands and utensils had to be properly washed. Food had to be properly grown, tied, prepared. Only certain clothes could be worn. Uh, since ritual purity was so important, they refused to share table fellowship. Uh, with sinners like these tax collectors, the common people of the land, and the idea of sitting down with a Gentile was clearly out of bounds. That was not even a consideration. The word Pharisee itself comes from a Hebrew word and then a Greek word uh, that means separatist. And so they were the separate ones, and primarily because of their dietary and, and purity laws, they separated themselves from the common people of the day. Now, theologically... They were pretty much like us. Uh, they believed all of the Old Testament to be the inspired Word of God. Uh, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, they were neither fatalist uh, in terms of an overemphasis on predestination like the Essenes, but they were not radical libertarians who emphasized free will to the extent, uh, to the exception of God's uh, sovereignty like, like the Sadducees. Uh, They believed very strongly in the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, who would deliver them from uh, oppression by the Romans. And they were anti-Rome, but they were not like the zealots. They, They were not prone to violence. And so they believed that they would ultimately be delivered by the coming of the Messiah. So you say, well, for the most part, then theologically on target for the most part. And, you know, morally upright. Oh, my goodness. Yes. They tithed. Yes. Went to church. Yes. Didn't commit adultery? No. So they were good folks. Oh, they, they were morally upright. 
then why did Jesus have so much conflict with them? He did not condemn them for what they were trying to do, live a righteous life. But he condemned them for their hypocrisy. He condemned them for taking their traditions and raising them to the same level of authority as the Scriptures themselves. And so the Pharisees, because they felt uh, attacked by Jesus, they felt threatened by Jesus, they did not like the fact that Jesus claimed that he could forgive sins. They didn't like the fact that Jesus ate with sinners. They don't like the fact that Jesus doesn't fast. They don't like the fact that Jesus doesn't honor the Sabbath as they think the Sabbath ought to be honored because they are a bunch of religious legalists. They came into conflict with Jesus that would lead eventually to his death on the cross. Now, today, one thing you do not want to be called is what? A Pharisee. But if we say of someone today, well, he or she's just a Pharisee, that means they're a legalist. And they are vaccinated with pickle juice and they're no fun to be around. That's who they are. That's what we think of when we think of a Pharisee. They did not think like that in the first century world. The Pharisees were admired. The Pharisees were held in very high esteem. The Pharisees came into very harsh opposition and received extensive criticism from Jesus. One example, the Old Testament law forbids work on the Sabbath, but it doesn't give many details. Well, the rabbis want to make sure that they didn't violate anything. So what they did was they came up with 39 categories, categories, mind you. I think I read one time where those categories contained 613 laws that would enable them to not violate the scriptures and in particular the Sabbath. So what could we do on the Sabbath? Well, uh, you could tie a knot only if you did it with one hand. If you took both hands, not allowed. Uh, a bucket could be tied over a well on the Sabbath, but only with a belt, not a rope. You say, why did they do that? I don't know, but they just felt that one would be uh, a violation of the Sabbath and another would not. Let me just jump to the modern era. You go to Israel today. I've alluded to this before. Uh, you cannot push a button on an elevator to go up and down. But you can walk up and down all the steps. So last January, when my wife and I were some friends, we were in a hotel in uh, Jerusalem that had, I believe, 25 stories. Uh, we could not push it. Well, you can push it. It ain't going to work. They've, they've turned it off. But praise God, they at least now have enough sense. What they used to do is they would just go ahead and automatically have all 25 buttons pushed. So you get on the first floor and you go to the second floor and you stop and you go to the third floor and you stop and you go to the fourth floor and stop and you go to the fifth floor and stop. And I'll stop right there, but you get the picture. Now, praise God, they do it this way. They punch the three, the five, the seven, the nine, the eleven, the thirteen, and so on. And then you make a decision. Do I want to get off and walk up one flight of stairs or do I want to get off and walk down one flight of stairs? But if you like, you can walk the whole 25 uh, stories and they don't consider that to be a violation of the Sabbath. Go figure. It seems a whole lot less work to push a button than walk my buns up 25 flights of stairs, although I may need to do that in light of my physical prowess. And so that's what they do today. And so you can see again just how in trying to do something good, they become crazy. And they put such pressure and oppression upon the common people. And Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Your hearts are not right. You say one thing, you do another, and you've raised your interpretations to the level of God's commands, and I condemn you for that. You will strain out a gnat, and you will swallow a camel. And here's what's amazing. In their zeal, 
to be holy and righteous. Not only did they separate themselves from men, they separated themselves from God. Paul writes about this in Romans 9 where he says of his Jewish countrymen, Oh, they have a zeal for God, but they don't know him. By the way, that's a good word of warning for all of us uh, this evening. We can have a, a zeal for God and still not know him. Hypocrisy, when it comes to matters of religion, are not unique to the Pharisees. They are common to all the religions of the world. Well, Jesus hears the question that they have raised there in verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so he responds with a well-known proverb and a statement that explains exactly what his mission is. He says, first of all, here's the well-known proverb. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. And that, by the way, is a common saying we find all over ancient literature. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. My mission, I came to call the righteous. No, I came to call sinners. He uses a common sense proverb that even his opponents would have recognized and they would have agreed with. And in the process, he exposes their hypocrisy, maybe. He certainly uh, exposes the fact that they are in spiritual denial. You say, what do you mean by that? The Pharisees, the religiously moral and upright, they were just as needy of a spiritual doctor. They needed just as badly spiritual healing. They were just as much in need of spiritual medicine as the tax collectors and the wicked. But unfortunately and sadly and tragically, they didn't recognize it. We're fine. We, we, I don't need a doctor. I'm not spiritually sick. Haven't you seen what I do? Haven't you heard about my reputation? I'm just fine. Jesus said, for people like that, I don't have anything to say. Because you won't hear. On the other hand, he says there in verse 17, I did not come to call those who have no need of physician. I came to call those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. You see, Jesus is just simply helping us understand tonight, you have to see yourself lost before you can get saved. You have to see that you have a need before you will turn to a Savior. You have to recognize that you're sick before you will seek healing. In fact, as Paul says in Ephesians, you've got to recognize that you're dead before you can be made alive in Christ. So, What do we learn from this text in terms of our five questions? Question number one, what does this text teach me about God? He sent Jesus to save sinners of all types. That includes tax collectors and sinners like you and me. He sent him on a mission to call sinners to salvation. Second question, what does this text teach me about sinful humanity? We're easily seduced by legalism and self-righteousness. If we're not careful, especially those of us who've been raised in church and been going to church for a long time, we can become self-righteous and think we're better than other people. God forgive us. What does this text teach me about Jesus? Well, three things. He loves sinners. He calls sinners. And he saves sinners. Question number four, what is, this, what is it that God wants me to know? He wants me to know, number one, like the tax collector and like these sinners, no one is too bad to be saved. Secondly, unlike the Pharisees, he wants me to know that no one is so good that they do not need to be saved. And then finally, lest I realize I am a sin-sick sinner, I can't be saved. It always makes me nervous, brothers and sisters, when I meet somebody. And I asked them, when did you 
come to know the Lord. Oh, I've always known the Lord. Well, no, you haven't. Even if you were converted as a young boy like me, you have not always known the Lord. There was a time in your life when you moved from death to life, from being a sinner headed toward hell to a saint saved by grace headed toward heaven. You have not always known the Lord. I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You must recognize that you are lost before you can be saved. So what does God want me to do? He wants me to love sinners like he does. And he wants me, Danny Aiken, to befriend sinners and spend time with them. You don't have it in your notes, but as I was thinking about this text, this, the, the song by J. Wilbur Chapman came immediately to my mind, Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And so let me read it to you as I close. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, what a guide and keeper. While the tempest still is high, Storms about me, night o'ertakes me. He, my pilot, hears my cry. Jesus, I do now receive him. More than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. May you and I go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the conviction of it that you brought this week and this last couple of weeks in my own life about the fact that I need to be more intentional in uh, rubbing elbows and, and shoulders with sinners, people who don't know, who don't know you. Because the fact is, I'm a sinner, just one that's been saved by amazing grace, scandalous grace. And that's the only difference between me and those that walk the streets of Raleigh-Durham and Chapel Hill and Wake Forest. I've just been forgiven. And that same forgiveness that you've shown me, you wish to extend to them. But, Lord, they can't be forgiven unless they hear the gospel. And they can't hear the gospel unless someone tells them. And I can't tell them unless I'm with them. So, Lord, help me understand that you were a friend of sinners. I need to be a friend of sinners, too. May you bring it to pass in my life for your glory and for my good. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.